Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, Paul. Bob Lieberman, how are you? Good, yourself? Oh, I'm doing well, thank you. Doing well. Good to hear. Considering. <laughs> I guess that's the new the new thing we say. <laughs> Consider Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, no, no bad news. That's good. <laughs> yeah, no bad news. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to this man, Bob Lieberman. He is a guy with some stories to tell, let me tell you. And we're going to get into a little bit of everything here, but his life has circled in and out of the world of entertainment. There are some stories involving... Being a tour manager, he's worked with people like Bob Dylan, Jimmy Buffett. He's even worked for the circus. So, Bob Lieberman, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I think that most stories are best from the beginning. Where were you born? Where are you from? <laughs> well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. In uh, May of 1950, so it's really easy to figure out how old I am. <laughs> Born to um, Laura and Erwin Lieberman. My dad was in the restaurant supply business, so we went out to dinner a whole lot. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom slash piano teacher. She graduated from Juilliard School of Music and uh, was an amazing piano player, and really anything she picked up, she could learn within an hour. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't transfer to her children. So uh, I got my father's side of the business. I, whenever someone asked me, uh, oh, you work for a musician, what do you play? I tell them the calculator. <laughs> so uh, that's where I, I grew up on Long Island. Uh, it was a pretty um, middle-class suburban area, we were like the neighborhood bad, bad people. We were just crazy. The Lieberman family was crazy. So I think it ran over when I grew up. But um, we just had a whole lot of fun growing up on Long Island. Uh, wasn't your typical family like the uh, <laughs> the Beaver, Cleaver family. So I think that's where I got my musical background. I always loved to listen to music. Uh, didn't play it, but uh, would would have music playing Throughout the day, I slept with the radio on at night. So maybe that's where uh, it was pointing me in the right direction as I grew up. I still don't know what I just want to do when I grow up, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's been said about you, and Ryan White said this, that you're a hell of a storyteller. And he also said, this guy's really led an interesting life. Would you agree with those assessments? Yeah, I think Ryan's got it spot on. Um <laughs> From when I, once I graduated college, I mean, when I graduated high school, I, I pretty much hit the road for six months trying to figure out what I wanted to do and just hitchhiked all over the country, had some amazing stories hitchhiking back in the sixties with long hair through the Midwest and the West. That was, that was interesting. Got arrested a few times on the way to California, but that's a whole nother story right there. Interesting. <laughs> 
when I when I went to college, I was majoring in advertising and journalism, but I think I was more majoring in chasing after girls. It was just a wild time back then in Gainesville, where I went to school at the University of Florida. And it just seemed like when I was growing up, I had a guardian angel looking down upon me because whenever something bad happened to me, it always turned into something good. So uh, probably didn't ask me how I got into the business, but I had some bad luck going to college. I won't get into the gory details, but I, I got arrested and I needed a lawyer. Hmm. And my lawyer just turned out that my lawyer turned out that he went ahead and bought a music hall and he uh, wanted to turn an old movie theater into a music hall and do live events, concerts, plays, movies, etc. And that's how I got the job. It was the Great Southern Music Hall in Gainesville. And he gave me the gig. Uh, I was doing advertising, promotions, stuff on the stage. And that's how I met Jimmy Buffett, by the way. Uh, he was doing a concert. He was there with just his guitar and a few bottles of whiskey. And um, I don't think he even remembers me. He was uh, quite drunk that show. And he may not even remember the show himself if I asked him now. But he must have remembered me because he called me a few years later and offered me a job. I want you to give us a little bit of your description of Gainesville, Florida. And I want to clarify, not Gainesville, Georgia, Gainesville, Florida. It, it's a place that's been written about a lot. And a lot of musical people have either come through there or they're from there. What are your memories from being there? Well, you know what they say about the 60s. If you could remember it, you weren't there. <laughs> the... um I, it was a crazy place. It was, they had a, the University of Florida had an amazing budget for, for concerts and the quality of people that came through that city was amazing. Plus the fact that a lot of musicians lived there, I believe Tom Petty, uh, that gentleman from the Eagles, who I forgot his name. Um, so it was a, it was a really rocking area. The, the college was very good. Um, it was a very, it was, it was sort of like California in Florida. If that's a good comparison during the 60s and 70s. So I actually, from the Great Southern Musical, I got a job at the University of Florida, and I was their technical director in charge of all their live events, speaking events, concerts, Gator Growl, um, the Halloween Ball, which was an amazing concert. If you ever want to look up uh, Gainesville, the Halloween Ball, take a look at some of the pictures uh, of the costumes that people wore. Insane. And uh, Jimmy played the ball also, and he obviously he took my phone number because he, um, I got a call from him a few years later. Great thing about the Gainesville thing was we did this show every year called Gator Growl, and it was done outside in the, in the stadium. At that time, the stadium didn't have an end zone, so it only had about 80,000. I think it's up to 100 now, only 80,000. So that year, they booked uh, Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review for the Gator Growl. And um, huge stage in the middle of the field. Uh, we did all the production. We set up the stage, loaded all the bands gear in. And it was an amazing show. At the end of the show, their production manager, Michael Ahern, came up to me and just complimented on what a great college crew we had. and Probably one of the best he's ever worked with. And he offered me a job to come on the road with Bob. And I was a junior in college. And uh, just, I was just shocked that he even gave me that job offer. I, you know, I had to been, I had to refuse it, of course, because I, I was in school, and um, that was just the right thing to do. I guess at the time, 
However, so I walked away, thanked him for it, and got about five steps away and realized, you fool, if you don't take this, you know, you'll never get an opportunity like this again. So I walked back to him, told him I'd love to have the job, and he uh, asked him where I needed to be and when, and he said, tomorrow in Tallahassee. And uh, that was the start of my touring career. What a start, huh? No kidding. No kidding. Going back to Jimmy Buffett, the first time you met him, what was your first impression? You said he was drunk, but <laughs> <laughs> what did you think? Right. Well, it, it, that show, it was, it was a crazy show. There was probably as much arguing between Jimmy and the audience as music was played. So <laughs> he, um, he was just seemed like such a great, great guy, a really casual, loose, you know, loose, looked like a surfer guy back then. Just a really laid-back attitude. We had done a lot of shows at the Great Southern Music Hall, so I had become unjaded uh, by, you know, by stars coming in. And uh, just meeting Jimmy, it was just like he was a regular guy. You know, he just wanted to have a drink with you, burn a joint, and uh, play some music. As you got to know him better, how would you describe Jimmy Buffett, not the star, not the guy you see on stage, but the guy himself? Yeah, you know, like I said, he's just a regular guy with a whole lot of money now. But <laughs> he would, you know, he'd come over to my house when we lived in California, when I lived in California, and sleep on the couch. You know, we'd go out to bars together. Uh, I mean, he slept on my couch so many times that people thought he lived there, which was a great thing. I was single, so girls would come over and, you know, ask to see Jimmy, and I'd, of course, invite him in. And he wasn't there, of course, but it was a great way to, way to meet girls. And, uh, <laughs> profiting off of Jimmy's famous exposure. But he was just a really, really nice guy. Had some great stories. Very laid back, like I said, which really made it easier to work for him. You know, you've heard stories about working for rock stars, and they're all true. But Jimmy really didn't have that kind of attitude. He wouldn't explode like a rock star. He was just like one of us. Uh, and But when D Jimmy did get mad, you, you better be careful and have a good excuse for why you fucked up. Oh, sorry, pardon my life. <laughs> So you're saying, for the most part, he was a pretty laid-back guy, but you still had to handle your business. Yes. <laughs> Even back then, um, he was business was, was definitely in the forefront. You know, touring with him, you know, we were a well-greased machine. People, we were just touring out there, making loads of money and flying under the radar. You know, people would think, hearing all these horror stories about rock stars, getting crazy in hotels. We had, we did all the same stuff, but nobody, you know, we were just out there flying on the radar, doing our own stuff in our tour buses, which made it a whole lot easier. The good thing about working with Jimmy at that point in time was his management company was uh, Frontline Management, Howard Kaufman and May Rest in Peace and Irving Aza. Now, those two guys had an amazing drawing power uh, for, for, his, for their groups because the Eagles were their number one group. So, and that was when the Eagles were incredibly hot. Not like they're not hot. They still are. But back then, you know, if you wanted to get a Eagles concert, this is the promoters I'm talking about, then guess what? You need to book a Jimmy Buffett show also. So we were able to play everywhere back then. Bookings were not a problem. And, you know, the first few years I worked for Jimmy, we were on the road for 300 days a year. Wow. Good night. You know, Jimmy then didn't just get there overnight. He's He really worked for it, and he deserves to be where he is. 
So what years would you say, what were the years that you worked for Jimmy Buffett? So I believe it was, these are tough, you know, the, the brain's going as I get older. I think it was like around 70 till 85, 86, 87, when he was really starting to grow his fan base. We, for, when I first started working for him, we were doing like um, concert halls, maybe a three, four, five thousand seat halls. When I left him, we were doing, you know, stadiums, 20,000 plus venues, multiple dates. And uh, his, of course, his guarantees went up all the time also. So having Irving Azoff as your management really helped out a lot. He was getting top dollars. And, uh, you know, back then there was he was making a lot of money. Even though it was a business, we still were having a lot of fun. You go see a Jimmy Buffett concert now, and it's gotten a lot more serious. They don't have as much fun as we're used to. <laughs> so I hear. So you're saying there was some craziness. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you know, his, you know, if we weren't all crazy, we would go insane. We, we were just some wacky knuckleheads out there having a good old time. You know, all the, the pictures I would see of the the entire cast crew the or uh, the band but everybody together your first impression when you see pictures was what a nutty crew this must have been <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it really was thank god we did not have cell phones back then <laughs> i don't know what would have happened if we did, if we did but like i said we got away with a lot of stuff <laughs> Now, you mentioned somebody, I'm glad you brought up Irving Azoff, and for all the people listening out there, he's probably the most legendary person in the business side of music, commonly known as Swerving Irving and other names. <laughs> but did you have any personal interactions with him? Did you ever get to know him a little bit? I, I did. You know, Irving would love to come out and meet us on tour when we're out there because, you know, going to the Eagles, being the Eagles management, and this is just stories I heard, <laughs> you know, they each have their own limo. There was always intra-fighting within the band members. There's always a drama going on whenever he would go out and visit them on tour. When he came out with Buffett, he'd have a good old time with us. You know, he didn't hear about any complaints or anything. We just were our own little touring machine out there. And that's why he loved coming to visit us. The drama level was way low. And he was able to ha come out and have a good time. I shot a few, um, I think it's the Somewhere Over China album. If you look at the back cover, it's me and Irving are standing right next to it. He's in like a Napoleon <laughs> outfit, and I was in a rabbi uniform. So whenever Irving would call me on the road or something, he'd call me the rabbi. So it's a little funny joke he had between us. But he was a great guy. And like I said, he had so much power back then and still does. He was able to, wherever Jimmy wanted to play, he was able to get us in and to do it. And Jimmy had some pretty wacky requests sometimes. And we were always, he was always able to get us gigs around the world. And that helped Jimmy rise up to the stardom he is now also. Of course, Jimmy did it all himself with his music, and his fans just love him to death, the Parrotheads. Now, keeping this uh, this family-oriented, but not too family-oriented, <laughs> do, <laughs> do you have any favorite memories from your time on the road with Jimmy Buffett? Oh, my Buffett? God. 
Well, there's a book definitely in the making for me. I may, I've been trying to talk Ryan into coming and writing this book with me. I need a ghostwriter. I can tell the stories. I just can't write them. But, and my book's going to be called I Wake Up Screaming. So I already have the title and just need the writer. But um, one funny, funny story that just always comes to mind when someone asks me to tell a story about Jimmy and and I've got thousands of them. Was a, a bus ride we were we took once. Um, we I don't remember where we were leaving from. We finished the gig and we had to go to Indianapolis to do a show the next day, which was about a typical 400 500 mile ride. You know, the booking agents didn't care how long we were in the bus as long as we he can get us another show. So we used to make a joke and call it dartboard routing. But anyway, this was a. Air drive, and after the show, the bus was loaded up with massive amounts of beer and whatever else the guys needed for a long bus ride. You can use your imagination. <laughs> so we all got loaded up, got the pizza, after show pizza, and the 20 cases of beer in the bus, heading down the road. And the band normally would meet in the back lounge, which is also Jimmy's private stateroom, bedroom. And uh, they would call that the Club Oreo. And they would rock in the Club Oreo most nights. I did not go to the Club Oreo a lot because I, you had to have a, one adult in the group to wake everybody up the next day. And that was my job. So the Club Oreo was rocking till oh, I don't know. I heard that the last beer opened about 5 or 6 in the morning. We pulled up to the Indianapolis Hilton, uh, excuse me, the Indianapolis Hyatt. And about seven in the morning when everybody's up and all the business people are up waking up for breakfast to go do their day's work and we're just getting in to go to sleep. So the way I normally would do our check-ins is I would go inside the hotel, get all the paperwork done, and they would have my key envelopes with everybody's name and room number and rooming list inside the envelope. So that way the band and the rock stars could just go inside and go right to their room. They don't have to go by the front desk. So I had gotten a few hours sleep that night. I woke up, went into the bus driver, told me we were there. We pulled into the parking lot and I get out of the bus and go inside. And even though I was still a little sleepy, I, my brain was not comprehending what was going in the hotel. So I went to the front desk, started getting the paperwork done. And I'm looking around and everybody in the hotel, and this is where I'm going to try and be politically correct. <laughs> everybody in the hotel was a short person. There was a short person's convention going on that day. <laughs> so. In my mind, it's racing. I'm going, this is going to be great. I'm just going to jerk this one for every bit I can. So got all the keys, went to the bus, woke up the band, gave them their keys, pointed them towards the lobby, and then uh, it was time to wake up the boss. Jimmy must have just gotten to sleep because he was just fast asleep. So I shook him, woke him up, told him we have to go. We're here. He needs to go to his room. He said, no, I don't want to, I want to sleep on the bus. No, Jimmy, you can't. The bus is going away to park and you won't be able to get off the bus. So let's go. So he grumbled a little and started to get his stuff together. Just a little back back story. When Jimmy drank and did whatever other stuff they did in the Club Oriole that night, he would get to the point where he was invisible. Have you heard of the three stages of drunkenness? Fill us in. What is it? Well, the first stage, I think, is happy. The second stage is bulletproof and the third stage was invisible well jimmy was way past invisible at this point he was just he couldn't even, when he gets at this point he can't talk he only like talks with his hands so 
we hand signaled and we told him it's time to go or get off the bus. I helped him get off the bus. He was definitely leaning on me the whole way out. And we go inside the building and Jimmy starts looking around and his brain is just not comprehending what's going on because he sees all these short people walking around. And so he looked at me, he looks at me for guidance and I'm just acting like nothing's wrong. What's the matter, Jimmy? He goes, no, everything's fine. And he's like flashing his hands in desperation. <laughs> but I said, no, don't worry. We'll get to a room. So I don't, I don't know what's the problem with let go. So we get walked through the lobby. You can see now he's just total panic in his eyes. He has no idea what's going on. We get into the elevator and it gets full of short people. And Jimmy looks at me and I, you know, I, I just act like nothing's, nothing's wrong. We get him to his room. He goes to sleep. I go to my room just a few doors down because I always wanted to be close to him. So the fans wouldn't bother him. And I get a call about one in the afternoon. It's Jimmy. He goes, hey, Baba, how you doing? I said, good, Jimmy. What's going on? He goes, you want to grab a bite for lunch? I go, yeah, sure. I'll meet you in your room. So I go over to his room. He goes, you know, I had the strangest dream last night. I go, what? Because <laughs> I dreamt that the hotel was full of sh- short people. I said, that's a crazy <laughs> dream. He goes, yeah, I know. Let's go. So we walk down. We start going towards the elevator. The elevator door open, and it's full of short people. And he turns to me, and he goes, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Of course, you had to be there to grasp the whole, uh, you know, the whole feeling. But it was so funny. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and that, that comes to mind. There's a whole lot of other stories that mostly traveling horror stories, you know, bus stories or airplane stories. Or the time our charter plane, the landing gear wouldn't retract. So we had to fly a few hundred miles, a few hundred feet over the ground to our next destination. You know, just silly stuff like that. At least we were alive and still able to talk about it. That's the way I look at it. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but it's it's pretty good timing because Bob Dylan has just released his 39th album. What an incredible career. Isn't that amazing? And yeah. it's, it's getting rave reviews, too. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's really good. So your time with Bob Dylan for the Bob Dylan tour, just to clarify... Would that have been the Rolling Thunder review time? It was. It was Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder review. Amazing set of a group of musicians he was able to ensemble. Um, when I came on the tour, it was the tail end of the tour. And I was just so excited to be there. I never really asked the production manager who offered me the job how long the tour was going to be. So that tour was very it seemed like there was no real itinerary. We only knew where we were going like a week ahead of time. And I think that he did that on purpose. He just, I don't, you know, he would just would pick a city and we'd go there and play it. Sometimes small venues, sometimes pretty large venues, but the tour lasted only a few weeks as far as I can remember. You know, it's really strange, Paul. I do not remember much about being out there and I wish I did. I wish I took some pictures, saved a few tour passes, but I, it was such a, whirlwind thing and I was just so thrilled to be there it was like Bob Dylan was my idol you know it's like oh my god working for Bob Dylan when they hired me they said now don't you know the only thing we want to ask you is don't you know go up and talk to Bob Dylan I said not a problem I said I wouldn't even know what to say to the gentleman and I remember sitting backstage before a show I'm sitting backstage minding my own business and Mr. Dylan comes up to me sits down and goes hey how you doing and I'm like, holy shit. 
I'm fine, Bob. How are you? He goes, just fine. Okay, we'll see you later. And it's like, that was it. That was the only time I talked to Bob for the few weeks that we went on the tour. But it was just amazing opportunity, you know, to start my touring career with Bob going to Rolling Thunder Review. I do remember we going out one night to a bar and I danced with Joan Baez, which is pretty cool because I never dance. But I don't remember much about it. After the tour was over, you know, it's like, okay, Bob, now you did it. You just quit college and what are you going to do now? <laughs> Luckily, the some of the musicians backing Bob and the Rolling Thunder View put together a band called the Alpha Band. You may have heard some of these musicians, uh, T-Bone Burnett. Oh, yeah. Stephen Souls, David Manson. T-Bone Burnett's an amazing writer. So we went out and did a tour with the Doobie Brothers after the Dylan tour finished. So I was able to pick up another gig right away for a few months. And then I was just, you know, out of work, out of college. So what do you do when that happens? You go home to mom and dad. Went to their home in Fort Lauderdale, got a job with the taxi company. And I'm sitting on the corner of Las Olas and A1A watching all these beautiful girls go by with the windows rolled down, the smell of coconut oils wafting into the uh, cab. And the dispatcher calls out and goes, Bob Lieberman, driver Lieberman, come in. So I go, this Lieberman, go. He goes, yeah, your mother just called. She wants you to call home. I go, okay. Didn't have cell phones, so I drove over to a pay phone, called mom. God rest her soul. She was just your typical Jewish mother. I go, ma, why did you call me over the air? I, I'm so embarrassed. She goes, well, I'm sorry, honey. I thought it was important. Jimmy Buffett just called you. They go, oh, that's important. Ma, thanks. So she goes, she wants, she wants you to call him. I called him up. He says, you want to come work for me? I go, yeah. He goes, uh, I said, when do you, uh, when you want me there? He goes, tomorrow in Atlanta. So that was my you know, start with Buffett. I was with him for 17 plus years, wonderful years, and uh, some amazing memories. Learned a lot from the man, too. <laughs> what would you say that you learned from Jimmy Buffett? Well, probably the most important is don't take life too seriously, especially now, you know, with what's going on in this crazy, wacky world. He made me become a lot mellower than I was before because of his, you know, his laid back attitude. And um, just working for him for 17 years, learned a lot about the tour management business and, you know, was able to carry on after I left him. But I love the guy. I love the guy. Still talk to him occasionally a few times a year. And what do you think of everything that has become of his world? It's just, I mean, I don't think there's... Amazing. Yeah, there, there's no musician in American music who really is quite like Jimmy Buffett. No, not, not at all. I mean, you know, maybe Bruce Springsteen. And you know what Warren Buffett said about Jimmy was he's the king of branding. And uh, he has one hit, Margaritaville. Of course, there's other great hits, but Margaritaville is what made him popular. And that's how he's made his millions and billions is from that wacky song about getting drunk. You gotta love it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite Jimmy Buffett song? Boy, there's so many good ones. I like had like top five. One of my favorite songs is They're Sending the Old Man Home. Uh, about a song about his dad retiring, I think. Mm -hmm. But that really one really 
breaks me up every time I hear it. And he doesn't play it that much. Of course, come Monday, son of a son of a sailor. I personally like Volcano because I'm singing in the song. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yes, I was one of the background singers there. That was probably the most funnest album we ever recorded with Jimmy was Volcano. We went to the island of Montserrat. Ah. What was that like? It was crazy. You know, Jimmy had this rule, no girlfriends or girls allowed to come with us. Of course, he brought his wife the first time. But anyway, that's the boss. You can do whatever you want. So here we are on an island of about 2,000 residents with a smoking volcano and 12 crazy drunk musicians. No women. So you figure out, well, did we have a good time? Yeah. <laughs> the the studio was, was oh man, the, the George Martin's the Beatles, it was his studio. It was we were the first musicians to play there to break it in. And that's where Jimmy got the, the title volcano. There was a smoking volcano in the backyard of the of the studio and a few months or a year after we left the half of the island blew up. <laughs> yeah, prophetic. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with that. <laughs> so these days you live in Florida, is that correct? I live in Florida. <laughs> How do you like living in Florida? It's a love-hate relationship here, I believe. I don't like being here in the summertime, which is about eight months out of the year. It's a great time to be here in the wintertime. We're probably, my, my wife has been a flight attendant with Delta for 30 plus years, so we're able to travel all over, usually for nothing. So our three to five year plan is to move out of Florida six months out of the year and go somewhere really cool. like be an expatriate or something. Interesting. Thinking maybe Mexico, Spain, Italy, Portugal, you know, the world's at our fingertips. As soon as they open it up, we're ready to travel. <laughs> what is the best thing about being Bob Lieberman? Oh Lord. Well, I have a great wife, loving wife and family, and just living the life here in Florida, Paul. Just living the life. And got a whole bunch of good stories also. Well, what would you say to anyone listening in? Could be anything at all. Totally uh, open-ended. You said help? Help. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, it's such a crazy time. I just, like, you know, just... Take Jimmy's attitude. Don't take it all so seriously or else you will go crazy. We've never seen anything like this in our lives. So it's all new to everybody. But just don't take it too seriously. We'll, get, we'll all get past it and things will go back to, I don't think it will ever be normal again. There'll be a new norm, but that's cool. We're due for a change here anyway, here in this crazy world of ours. <laughs> I had these labels that I put on you. And people have said different things about you, like that you're a storyteller, but in in your past, you were a tour manager. How would you define Bob Lieberman? Oh, my God. Well, like I said, I mean, it's just some guy trying to get through in this crazy world with a whole bunch of great stories to tell. And definitely there has to be a book in it somewhere. So uh, it's just two crazy stories to go go to the grave with without telling some of them. 
No joke. <laughs> well, <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing some of these stories with us. Hey, it's great talking to you, Paul. And make sure your fans keep an eye out for my new book coming out. I wake up screaming or if all, all the stories I couldn't tell. <laughs> I like that one, too. That's a good title. <laughs> well, you'll have to keep us surprised. For sure, Paul, I will. And thanks a lot. I mean, it's been great talking to you. I love love your interviews with everybody and uh, appreciate you talking to me, spending some time here. My pleasure. All right. It's 94 degrees outside and supposed to get up to 98 here in beautiful Florida. Oh, <laughs> that's a hot one. <laughs> yeah. All right, Bob. Until next time. Great. Thanks, Paul. You all take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.